Lucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, we're changing it up a little bit, and I'm talking with one of our graduate students, Amelia Kaler. She was born and raised in Houston, Texas, in a family of seven children. She has a BS in geosciences from the University of Houston downtown. She also has an MS in geosciences from our own University of Arizona, and now she's back at U of A pursuing her PhD in geosciences. And I'm really excited to talk to her about the perspective of being a female graduate student in STEM. And so welcome, Amelia. Thanks, Jess. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. Oh, that's so nice. Um, I think it's awesome uh, that what you're doing here. I love hearing about faculty in my department and faculty from other departments and just overall plucky ladies. Yeah. 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 The theme, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but that came out of my own experience as a graduate student being told by an advisor that I wasn't very smart, but I was plucky and that that was going to take me far. I know the look on your face was sort of like, Hmm, is that nice or not so nice? I feel like that's a backhanded comment. Yeah. Yeah. I told that story in my very first episode and that's really where the title came out of because all these years later, I can look back on that and say, well, damn, I'm proud of being plucky. And yeah, it is my pluck that sort of has gotten me as far as I am, because I don't consider myself like a natural genius or something like that. Some people are and school comes easy for them. And it wasn't that way for me. But um, yeah, at the time, it was a little, <laughs> it's a little off putting. Just a bit. But you know, you seem to have taken ownership of it quite nicely. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so I want to go back a little bit and start at the beginning because one of the most fascinating things to me is you growing up in a family with seven children. I was an only child. So I want to hear a little bit about your childhood experience and how maybe that played into where you're at today. Mm, okay. Well, if at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all you can't have and grow up having six siblings and have it not really play into where you are today. Yeah. Um, so I am the middle child out of seven kids. Mm-hmm. It was always, always noisy. Um, and I think I kind of fit that middle child stereotype where I try to be super independent and like make sure every I, I'm good and my parents don't have to worry about me. Yeah. <laughs> Although like, I, I feel like my mom wants to worry about me more than I let her. So yeah, mine too. Mom. Mine too. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Yeah. But you know, I I never really thought about doing science until I got to around middle school age. Mm. Uh, when I took eighth grade science and I had a teacher who just noticed that I had a natural inclination for science and she started pushing me towards outside of school events. So the first one I did was I went to a ExxonMobil weekend in engineering and STEM related activities for girls at one of the local high schools. Mm. And I was hooked after that. So then she pushed me to do this girls in engineering summer camp at Texas A&M that that same summer and I did that and I yeah I was pretty set after that and my older sister was always both of my older sisters were always really good uh, role models and like paving the way in STEM for me because my oldest sister is a petroleum engineer oh she was always giving me lots of tips and tricks on how to do things in college and applications and this and that and letting me know that STEM is okay for me to get into as a woman yeah. And my other sister, uh, she's uh, number three in birth order. Yeah. <laughs> she actually has a master's and a and an undergraduate in geology, like me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And she and I came to geology kind of at the same time, but totally unknowingly to each other. That really? We did that. Yeah. So she was, she was in her first or second year of undergraduate and I was about to finish high school mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to do something in science I just didn't know what yet yeah and my dad being the planner that he is uh he he concocted this plan to take us out to 
Alpine, Texas for spring break, just a spring break trip. That's all we thought it was. We were going to have fun. And my sister, she was at the time thinking about changing her major. And so my dad being the the master planner is trying to help guide us in in the right direction. So Mm. we get out to Alpine and he's scheduled for this tour of the university that's out there, Alpine or Sol Ross State University. And we end the tour at the geology building (laughs) and out comes this professor. I think he's the head of the department and he comes and greets us and shows us around the building. And then we sit down and talk to him about geology for an hour or so in his office. And my dad, I I can't imagine what he was thinking, (laughs) like just how how much planning he had to put into this or thought. Um, But then probably a couple months later, my sister and I were both declared geology majors. Oh my God. For her, that was the trip that solidified things for me. I I wasn't completely sold after that. I, I was sold after I saw someone melt a rock. So I was, I I was in this, um, this scholarship program at my undergrad university and they were really proactive on making you stay up to date on your professional, any professional development. So mm-hmm. CV, resumes, et cetera, applying for other scholarships, getting into research from an early age, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. It was a lot to handle, but I'm, in hindsight, I'm really happy I did it. Yeah. It made us go on this tour around all of the science labs in the natural sciences department. And the last lab we were at was a rock lab where they just I saw a girl melt a rock in an oven and as soon as that tour was over I went to the head of the geosciences majors office and I said I want to do this yeah how how do I sign up Mm -hmm. where can I sign up yeah and a couple weeks later I was declared geology and I never looked back oh my gosh so that's a little bit similar to my story, although mine was a class that drew me in, but it was the same. I ended up at the department chair's office. She was a woman. Hey, I want to be a geologist, but I'm really behind. For me, I was really behind because I hadn't been interested in science at all throughout my life. And so I needed to go back and take a bunch of math and foundational science and things I hadn't done yet, but that was it. I never looked back. So there's a couple things I want to unpack here. One is this importance of teachers in your life, a teacher that sort of saw something in you and encouraged you. This is one of the things that inspires me when I teach is that we just don't often even think about how much influence we can potentially have on a student um, to, to simply to encourage them. If you see something in them that, you know, they seem to have a natural knack for, which is, I think, such an important message. Um, but also, I'm really curious to know, why was your dad so interested in getting you guys into geology? Is he a geologist? No. Okay, so I'll start out answering the first question. Um, so, yeah, teachers, definitely, they are so, so important, especially at, at young ages in middle school. Yeah. Uh, getting kids interested in science. And it only takes a couple of really cool experiments to do that. It actually doesn't take much. Yeah. Um, and that teacher, she's actually teaching at the high school that I went to, and I've been meaning to get in touch with her and let her know that she, she's the one who got the whole ball rolling for me. Yeah. And so much so that every time, every time I think of a scientist now, I think of her. Mm. And I, I didn't realize this until a couple of weeks ago, I was doing um, an implicit bias quiz Yeah. for this uh, UA Agreed uh, seminar that Diane Thompson's leading for, mm-hmm. with the graduate students. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how everybody, a lot of people will think of men when they hear science, engineering, et cetera. Right. I realized while I was taking that quiz really rapid fire, that teacher was popping in my head. Yeah. That is pretty, that's pretty impactful, I think. Yes, yes. Um, And to answer the second question about my dad, (laughs) (laughs) my dad is a civil engineer and Uh works for a school district in Houston. And I think he was so interested in geology because he he says he never got to do it in undergrad and he kind of wanted to, yeah. but he just didn't because 
there was a really bad bust with oil at the time when he was doing his degrees. So he didn't go for geology because that was kind of the, the track that he saw for himself was to go into oil and gas. And even that's what he saw for us. He wanted us to go into oil and gas with this. And he said, you could have a great job, very stable. Although I don't know about that part, but he says you can have a great job with it. Yeah. And get to live in Houston. Yeah. I mean, so that's one thing that some of our listeners may not know, but Houston really is a hub for the oil and gas industry. I mean, there's so many people who live in Houston are in that world. And, Ooh, yeah. a, and a lot of people, when they hear geologists, they immediately go to oil and gas. They think that's what you do with a geology degree. So it's, it's natural to think, Hey, this is a really great way to get a good job where you make good wage. Right. And, and they are good jobs. We have a lot of friends who work in industry and who really mm-hmm. enjoy it and make a good living as geologists, but there's a whole other side to, to that, right. With geology where, where I know you say, um, in the bio, you sent me that you really missed field work when you weren't doing field work. So we'll get there too, because I think field work is such a, it can be a little controversial these days to talk about the importance of field work in geosciences. And, um, you know, as a woman, I think, I know I had my own special struggles with doing field work as we all do, but okay. So you go on this tour, you end in the, I love how you end on the geology building (laughs) with your dad. Then you end in the geology rock lab and see a rock melted. It's like these things were just lining up to to make you a geology major. Yep. Yeah. I should say, because my mom will probably listen to this. My mom was on all of these tours with us too. So I, I think she had a hand in this as well. Yeah. And she had a hand in pushing me towards this scholarship. Yeah, I, I didn't want to do it. Really, <laughs> it's too much work. Yeah, so, yeah. Both is, of my parents push me a lot with that. And what does your mom do? Does she does she work? My mom. I, I grew up with my mom working in the oil and gas industry, oh, okay. so she would do a lot of the contracting and bidding for a lot of smaller offshore drilling companies. Mm-hmm. So the last one she worked for was a Norwegian company, and she really mm. loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up with oil and gas all around me. I, I just never really acknowledged it Sure. <laughs> uh, until like my dad was, told me you could get this degree in geology and work in oil and gas. Yeah. And then after that, I was like, okay, I guess this is the only job you can get as a geologist until I started poking around more in my undergrad. Yeah. But you did in fact, so you got a master's degree and you did in fact spend some time working in oil and gas, right? Yeah, just a little bit. I did an internship with ExxonMobil and I was lucky enough to do research with the research side of the company. Yeah. And I I think while I was at the company, that was a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I really missed field work and I I really missed doing tectonics and basin analysis a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So before we start talking about some of that, because some of our listeners are not geologists. So let's just give them a little bit of a breakdown. So your master's degree, you were here at U of A and you were working with Dr. Carapa, Barbara Carapa, who's a former guest of the show. Um, so she did talk a bit about her work, but if you can give a little brief breakdown, sort of what this area of tectonics that you're particularly interested in is about, this basin analysis, because I'm not sure, like some people hear basin Maybe they know what that means in geologic terms, but maybe not. And what you're maybe trying to constrain when you look at these basins. Yeah. So sedimentary basins are are what I look at Mm -hmm. primarily. And a lot of people who don't know a lot about basin analysis today will think, well, you're just looking at sedimentary rocks, which is actually not the case. Um, And I'll get into that in a bit, but a sedimentary basin develops in an area that has tectonics going on around it. And so I like to think of them as kind of like a history book. Um, And it's just recording what's going on tectonically around it. Mm -hmm. And then say there's another tectonic event that comes through. Well, that's a whole different chapter in the history book. Yeah. And so what I do is I go in and I decipher that. And I use a, a, a lot of different techniques to do that. And I'm constantly learning new techniques. Yeah. uh, Which is pretty exciting. But so I use sedimentology. So I look at details in the sedimentary rock record uh, to constrain depositional environments. So was this 
was this basin uh, characterized by a river system? Was mm-hmm. it an alluvial fan? Maybe it was an offshore marine setting? That kind of question. Um, and then I really try and constrain time after that. So I use the detrital zircon record. So these uh, microscopic gray minerals that you can isolate out of a sandstone and Hopefully you get a youngest age population that tells you what time your basin was being deposited at. Um, You can use thermochronometers to talk about source, uh, also talk test um, what time your basin rocks might've been coming up and all sorts of complicated questions you can answer with that one. And and that is definitely a more complicated field in itself. Yeah. Let's see what else do I use this week. I I learned how to process samples for whole rock argon argon analysis, which is another chronometer. Yeah, yeah. I found this, but is very interesting. I'm like measuring section in January out in the field, and and measuring section is just basically taking a ruler and measuring how thick your sedimentary rocks are. Yeah, and I'm doing that, and I come across a basalt. Mm, which is an igneous rock. Yeah, which is an igneous rock. Yeah. It's a mafic igneous rock that I find out in the middle of this sedimentary sequence. And it's just really the timing of uh, when it must have been deposited is is weird. So I'm investigating how to figure out how the age of that basalt right now, because normally I just do detrital zircon or, or sorry, not detrital zircon, uranium lead geochronology. Yeah. The salts don't really have a lot of that mineral zircon in it. So right. you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I learned a new method this week. Um, see other questions we look to answer are where the sediments were coming from for right. this basin. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these different questions that we're asking are pulled together to answer a larger question about what was going on in this basin tectonically. Why why is this basin here? Yeah. What caused it to be here? What caused all of this space to, de- to develop mm-hmm. over time? Yeah. So um, just to simplify a little bit for people who may not be geologists who are listening, a basin is literally what it sounds like. It's kind of like a big depression, a big bowl in the ground that is related to usually the formation of say, like a mountain range or some other tectonic event that, that causes the earth's plates, right? The crust to basically do weird things like fold and buckle and bend and things like that. So often you'll see these associated with mountain ranges. Like you might have a big mountain range. And then on one side of it is this big depression that we call a basin And what's really cool is that that basin starts to fill up, as you say, with sediments that are being shed from all around. And they could be coming from the mountains right nearby. There could be a river dumping stuff in there. You could have an offshore basin, as you say, that fills up with marine sediments. So like when you say it's a chapter book, literally those layers, they're being laid down in these layers, one on top of the other. These are literally the chapters in your history book. And so you're able to take those rocks and analyze them and look for things like when were they deposited? How old are they? Um, When you find out how old they are, sometimes that tells you the rock that they came from, right? Because Mm -hmm. the age matches some mountain nearby that has the same age. You can tell when you say thermochronology, you're looking at What were the temperatures these rocks were experiencing over time? So were they deep in the earth? When did they become shallow in the earth, right? So all of these pieces really come together to, so you can almost rewind the movie of how the space informed. And that tells you something about what went on in that part of the world geologically, which is really cool. And sometimes people don't realize like geology is basically putting together a history, a story. Yeah. Exactly. I, I say it all the time. We are kind of like storytellers of the earth. Yes. That's, that's what we are. And we have trained ourselves to think on things on a totally different order of time yes. than people are used to thinking on orders of millions and billions of years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's so important too, because again, we as humans, I think we're really trained to think in you know, years to tens of years, maybe. 
And so when we talk about things that happened a billion years ago or 500 million years ago or 60 million years ago, people are just like, wait a minute, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But we have tools that actually give us the data that we can constrain things in that way. These are not stories in the sense that they're made up. These are stories that are pieced together from lots of of physical evidence being collected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So. And you have all these really nice surface expressions of what's going on below the crust that mm-hmm. we get to look at. And that's also part of the larger question, what was going on tectonically. So yeah. I love this field of geology. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I know you say that, um, you know, while you were doing your internship, you were missing the field work. So you did field work for your master's degree. Um, were you, so I love to ask this question of geology folks, because I was, I did not grow up outdoorsy, but I ended up loving the field. So did you always have a love for being out in nature or was this something you discovered through geology? You know, in Houston, Texas, you don't get to spend too much time outdoors. Yeah. It's always hot and humid Mm -hmm. and there's this concrete jungle all around you. But my parents were really good about getting us out of that over spring break. So for a while, we'd go um, stay in a log cabin on the Frio River in the hill country of Texas. And we Mm -hmm. loved doing that for spring break. And then after after a while, my parents transitioned to camping in a tent. Mm-hmm. I will never forget it. They have this 12 person tent that yes. they got for everyone to stay in. It has like three different rooms in it. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. But they take us on hikes and do all that stuff. Uh, like all, all the outdoor stuff on those trips. And my mom, my mom really loves that stuff. And, mm. and she loved going on those camping trips and Girl Scouts. I, I think I forgot to mention, I did a lot of stuff through Girl Scouts too. Okay, yeah. So um, yeah, we would go camping. It, it was a little, it wasn't um, like backpacking kind of camping. It was, we'd stay in little cabins and yeah, uh, there was a dining hall and this and that that you could choose to use if you want it. But yeah, we, we would go camping sometimes with Girl Scouts and do that outdoor stuff. I guess I did like it because I, I had to go to a different troop to get backpacking. Mm. No one in my troop wanted to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no one wanted to do that. So one, one other girl in my, in my troop, she, I convinced her and we, we went to a, another troop to go, to go backpack. That was oh, fun. That's, that's great. So you, so you had an interest. So an interest, what was it? But I wasn't ever like super hooked or like begging yeah. my mom. So what was it like the first time you did field work for your master's degree? It's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Um, I mean, the camping part, I'm, I was comfortable with that. I, I mean, we get out there and we're backcountry camping by the car, but I'm still like, wow, I've never done this before. Yeah. Yes. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. And then you know, we start doing field work the next morning and I'll never forget. Barbara asks me if I know the, my all facies classification codes for a fluvial system. And she listed them all off, which is like FSM, FSL, SM, et cetera. A lot of letters were being spewed out. It's just like, I have no idea what's going on here. It was very obvious that I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I talked to her about this later and she said, oh yeah, we we knew, we knew (laughs) that (laughs) you didn't know, but you learned. And that's the important part. Right. But what's so great about that story is (laughs) I think every single one of us has had an experience like that. It's really scary to start a graduate program, no matter what field you're in. I mean, you're coming out of undergrad, even if you've done some research as an undergraduate, there's nothing like diving into a graduate program, whether it's a master's or a PhD. And all of a sudden you're running with people who, who have been doing this for years, sometimes decades. And so they start whipping out all this terminology and they just, that's how we talk to each other as scientists. We almost just assume that the people around us know what we're talking about. They use it just like it's their normal language. And that can be really jarring because you go, oh my gosh, how am I going to keep up? Yeah, it's definitely jarring. It, It is scary in the moment, but I think it 
was an overall positive thing because it pushed me a lot to make sure I was up to speed on that terminology and I understood it. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it happens every time I go out to the field, like, um, like even, even when I came back for my PhD, I started doing work out in the McCoy mountains and I thought it was going to be easy peasy, a fluvial system. I already know how to look at fluvial sedimentary rocks. Um, I, I know that my old classification scheme, right? Yeah. But we get out there and Barbara and Pete are looking around and like, these don't look quite fluvial. You might need a different classification scheme for these. So yeah, looking yeah. into turbidites. So a whole new branch yeah. of sedimentology, which people will dedicate their entire careers to. Yeah. But I have to try and adapt. <laughs> yeah. So just again, to let people know, when we say fluvial, we're talking about river systems. And so rocks mm -hmm. that are being deposited in a river system, some sort of active river system that isn't there anymore in a lot of cases. So you're just looking at the rocks that were left behind and the river is no longer there. Um, and we call that fluvial. You also mentioned the word alluvial earlier, which is like things that are deposited on the edges of mountain ranges. And you, they make these sort of what we call fans, these layers of deposits adjacent to the mountains. They can look very different. And then you said the word turbidites. So tell people what that is, because that's really yeah. different than a river deposit. Very different. Yeah. Well, turbidites are I think like this, this slurry of water and sediments mixed up together. And they come down, say, like the, the slope of um, the shelf slope. So off the coast, think mm -hmm. of like them. Like yeah. California, right? Mm -hmm. California. So you have this massive cloud that's a slurry mix of sediments and water coming down the slope uh, offshore California. And then they hit the ocean floor where it flattens out and they deposit. Mm -hmm. um, and they do it in a very systematic and organized way. Yeah. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, and I hope I did that well enough. That's a that's turbidite perfect. system. That's perfect. But what's so interesting about that is you walk into a field environment and you're expecting fluvial, which we think of as we also call terrestrial. This is something that's happening on land. Then you see a turbidite deposit. You're like, we could be in an offshore situation here. This is submarine. This is in the ocean. And that's either, well, either submarine or or is submarine, or it could be just a subaqueous uh, lake turbidite. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, but a different process. I mean, this is a yeah, different totally process. different. Process. Yeah, yeah. So that can be very exciting, but also intimidating. And this is so a really good point from this discussion is that this is what makes science go. This is what moves us forward, right? Is that sometimes we think we know the answer and we discover we were wrong. But that doesn't mean it's bad science. Now we have a new direction to follow. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. you said the, the McCoy Mountains. Tell us where those are. Yeah. So I, my field work or my, my research mostly focuses on southwestern U.S. geology. Mm -hmm. So for my master's, I looked at the Fort Crittenden, Fort Crittenden formation out in the Santa Rita Mountains, which is south of campus. Yep. And then when I came back from my PhD, I wanted to continue doing research in this southwestern region. Um, so Barbara proposed looking at the McCoy Mountains formation, which is exposed in southeastern California and southwestern Arizona. Mm -hmm. So right there at the border between the two states near yep. Blight and Quartzsite, if you know where those places are. Yeah. Um, so, so far I've done most of my work in the McCoy mountains because that's the type locality, which is basically just saying, this is the baseline that we want to compare everything else against. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did a lot of field work this past winter because you can't go out during the summer. It's, no. it's way too hot. Yeah. Last time I was out in the field, it was the last weekend in February mm -hmm. and I stepped on a rock that had a rattlesnake underneath it. Oh, wow. I didn't see it, but it, met, it made me very aware of its presence. Yes. <laughs> that I remember that happening to me at field camp many times. 
And field camp was my first exposure to any sort of field work in my whole life. Like we just, my family was not outdoorsy. We didn't really camp or hike or do any of that stuff. And here I was hiking every single day and there were rattlesnakes everywhere. I was in Montana in the summer and you would step on a rock and it would sort of do this. The rock would be loose and it would sort of wiggle waggle back and forth. And then you would hear, you know, that sound of the rattlesnakes and you would just jump and realize, oh, I think there's a nest under there. It's a scary experience. So scary. Yeah. A lot of people ask me like living in the Southwest, how do you live with all those critters around? And it's true. Like, you know, bobcats, coyotes, rattlesnakes, they're everywhere. So if you're a field geologist, you have to be aware of your surroundings for sure. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I did a uh, field season in Wyoming this mm-hmm. past summer. So site project is on the Northern extent of the Western U S. Mm-hmm. So I did a project out in Wyoming and it's day one after we split from the advisors and my friend Cheering and I were out hiking and we're like, okay, we're going to go and backpack in camp at the base of the mountain that we want to hike the next day, mm-hmm. hike to the top, grab our samples, come back down, sleep, and then hike out the next morning. So yeah. overall it would have been like a two night backpacking trip. We would have been camping by this lake. Everything seems to be going smoothly. We managed to get the food up in the tree pretty far away at night. Um, And then it's like 9 p.m. And I start hearing something moving outside of the tent. And I hear some tree branches snap. And my cheering, get up. I think there's something out there. And then we hear a bear roar. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, surely they've gotten the food. Thank goodness. It's really far away from us. We're going to be fine. Yeah. And then we hear like galloping coming towards us and we hear something going to the water. And then we realize there are two bears. <gasps> oh. <laughs> and what and they keep galloping towards us. And this is all happening over like an hour to two hours. I don't know. Time seemed to stretch out really far. Yeah. Like, during this whole thing. And it comes right up to the tent, like only like a foot maybe two away from our heads, sniffs us and then walks off. And then the second one came through and did the same thing. Oh my goodness. That is terrifying. Were these black bears, grizzly bears? Do you know? We have no idea. We were too scared to get out of the tent until it was light outside in the morning and their, their paw prints were not preserved in in the morning. Yeah. Just know there were bears out there. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, So yeah, this is one of the things I remember before going to Tibet for my PhD work, thinking to myself, like, what are the threats going to be? It's not trivial to think about that. You're especially when you're away from your advisors. Like when we went to Tibet, it was me and two other grad students, no advisors. And we're 7,000 miles away. I mean, if something happens, you're on your own, but even on an overnight backpacking trip, you know, you're, you're there's a period of time that you can feel very vulnerable because it's just you and one other student out there. Extremely vulnerable. I, I like to say like, cause I noticed this when I started my master's research, like once you get here, you're the one who's planning the field work and the field trips. You have to be the adult on these trips. Yeah. Um, if something goes wrong, you are responsible and you have to figure out how to get yourselves out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that bear, that bear experience was terrifying, but I mean, out in the McCoys, there was, we still had issues, even though there isn't, there's not really much alive out there to get you during the winter, at least. Yeah. But we got the truck stuck really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I was driving. So luckily had cell service and I called Pete. I was like, Pete, I'm really stuck right now. How do I get the truck out? coach me through it and it was all fine yeah he's one of your co-advisors Pete he's one of yeah, the faculty Pete's members one of my co-advisors yeah. yeah we've had that we have that experience too in Tibet but we were so far away from civilization and at the time this was in 1999 we didn't have cell phones and that's it if you're stuck you're stuck so I mean I re- there were a couple occasions where we would we'd camp that night 
by the stuck truck and start in the morning again. And sometimes it would take a day or more just to get a truck unstuck. Yeah. Um, So I know for my mom, we mentioned earlier that our moms sometimes worry about us more than we want them to. (laughs) I know for my mother, that was one of her biggest concerns was the field work aspect of it. So how do your parents feel about you being out in the field? Do they have, do they worry or they're just like, go forth? Yeah, they, they definitely worry. They definitely worry. My mom says she prays for me a lot while I'm out in the field to make sure I'm safe or I'll, I'll get, she'll get a call from me. What the one after in Wyoming, I was like, mom, we survived this bear thing, this close encounter. And she's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. She worries a lot for sure. I know. Did you ever feel like maybe I shouldn't have told her that story? Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally like, um, in my master's, I, I encountered these ranch owners. They they were very stern, but they weren't like hostile or anything with me. But I and I wasn't trespassing. We just came up on a gate that was closed, so they needed needed to get through. So we were trying to get through, and this lady was saying there are a lot of people who cross through uh, on her on her ranch property, and she said you shouldn't be out here alone, just two of you women. Um, especially if you're not packing and that means carrying the gun. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Am I, I'm, I'm from Texas. So of course my family's always asking, are you carrying a gun out there? Oh my goodness. I don't feel comfortable enough doing that. So like with yeah. the bears, I carry bear spray. Just, I mean, the only pistol that you can really get a bear with is going to really weigh you down. And sure. I just, I feel like it's more of a hazard for me to be carrying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Sure, sure. Yeah, no. I had an experience in Tibet where I went snow blind. And I remember because we couldn't call anybody because we didn't have phones, we went back to Lhasa and I was able to get to an internet cafe and just send my mom off an, a quick email before I then had to leave again to be gone for months. You know, we weren't going to be in contact. And the email was basically, we're doing okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was snow blind for a couple of days, but I'm fine now. I'm getting better and I'll see you in, you know, I'll talk to you in two months or something. And, and I remember her telling me when I got home, why did you do that to me? Because she couldn't talk to me and then confirm that like things were okay. It was just like, oh, by the way, I went snow blind. Talk to you in a few months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They definitely don't enjoy that kind of thing. Or like you leave them a voicemail saying that it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. So I try to make sure that she picks up when I tell her anything that happened out in the field. Right, right. (laughs) And assure her everything's all right. So some people listening might be thinking, you know, so why would you want to do this? And you did say you missed it when you were in working in the oil industry. So talk a little bit about what it is about field work that's so special, because I think this is something that many geologists, not all, but many have in common, this love of the field. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I get really excited, uh, like reading reading the storybook. If we're continuing this analogy, yeah. well, like reading this the the chapters in this book, it's really exciting when you come across something like weird, like that basalt. That that was really weird, but I was so excited when I saw that. Yeah, um, I found something kind of like a Bauma sequence, which is uh, an uh, an organization of the the sediments in a particular manner that is diagnostic of a turbidite system mm-hmm. and oh my god I was so excited and like I just I totally geeked out <laughs> we all geek out when we're out in the field and I think that's part of the the love for going out there is like finding these new interesting weird things to look at um and not being I, I like the part where I'm up and moving and getting to spend time outdoors yeah, um, I think the the big deal breaker for me about staying in industry was that I I didn't want to be behind a desk all day. Yeah, I didn't want to be behind a desk picking seismic lines. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of thought that goes into picking seismic lines. I I just didn't want to I didn't want to do it. I wanted to redirect my thoughts out to looking at weird things in the field. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, again, it's a common theme. Many geologists that I know, that's what drew them to geology was this is a job where you can potentially spend a good portion of your time, um, not behind a desk. I mean, all of us do spend time behind a desk because we write or we take classes or we teach, 
but there's this promise of potential to spend periods of time out living in a tent, looking at rocks, hiking around, being in nature and making discoveries, which I think is really exciting. It it really is. And I think one of the other things I really like about the territory of being in academia here is that, you know, you're not just out in the field all the time and you're not just behind a desk. You know, there's teaching, there's lab work, Mm -hmm. field work, of course, a lot of reading papers and writing, but it's multifaceted. And I really like that element to it because if I'm sick of being out in the field, which does happen, sure, I can go and chill out and read some papers at home and just continue to expand my, uh, my literary scope on whatever I'm, I'm researching. Right. Or if I don't want to sit behind my desk in my office all day, I can go to the lab. Yep go process a sample or count a sample, which counting is for thermochronology for appetite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so true. And it's one of the reasons that I think of geology as being, you know, it's interdisciplinary in nature and that you're thinking sometimes about chemistry and sometimes about physics and sometimes about, you know, there's all different things at play, but also interdisciplinary in the techniques and methods and tools that you use that like you say, it can be field, it can be lab, it can be all these different things. And that's so, it's so glorious about geology. I just, I wish they taught it in high schools. I wish it was like a required course in high schools, because I think more people would, would find a love for it younger, you know, earlier in their life. Yeah, I I think so too. I wish we had had it when I was in high school. Although I do know some people that have had it at their high school and they say, oh, geology was for all the dumb kids who couldn't do physics. Right? No. Okay. So it's so funny that (laughs) it comes from, I know. Well, uh, Paul, my husband, Paul, who's also a geologist experienced that where he was kind of a quiet guy in middle school. And when he went to high school, they put him in earth science instead of biology or whatever the regular class was because they thought he was slower than the other kids because he was quiet and got, guess what? It's probably the best thing that ever happened to him because he discovered how much he really loved thinking about the earth, you know? So, um, I don't quite understand why geology has gotten this reputation. I mean, you even see it in pop culture where people make references to geologists as, you know, being the partiers or the beer drinkers or, you know, not the real scientists. And I, I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all nerds, just like the rest of the scientists. I, I, I mean, the beer part, that's definitely true. Well, I, I would agree with that part. Geologists right. do drink a lot of beer, but we're not like party kids who don't, yeah. who don't learn things and who aren't good at science. Yeah. I mean, the field, it's almost impossible to come back from a long day of hiking in the field and not have a beer around the fire with your colleagues or something. But, but I bet you, you know, I think physicists are throwing down pretty good at the end of a long day in the lab. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they are. Yeah. Um, So I do want to ask you in this last bit of time that we have being a woman in STEM, which is still, you know, we're still underrepresented, especially in geosciences, which is not um, you know, not great in terms of representation by women. I think there's a lot of women in the program as students. So we're about 50%, both undergrads and grads, but the workforce is woefully underrepresented by women, which is still a problem. So I'm curious for you, if there have been any, um, struggles related to that for you, it sounds like you've had a pretty good experience overall from the beginning with people sort of giving you opportunities and helping you along but you, you also work with a female advisor. And so I'm just curious if any of that comes into play in terms of having a, a female mentor and how maybe some of this has played into your experience. I mean, here in the department, I think we have a lot of really good role models uh, for what, what to aspire to or mm-hmm. goals to reach. Um, with Barbara being my advisor, we have you, uh, you're a fantastic female faculty member here. We have, um, although we might be un- underrepresented within the department on this front, the quality of the female role, ma- role models we have here is it's really high. Yeah. The quality is just really high. Um, 
So, you know, that, that gives me hope, a lot, a lot of hope and inspiration to keep moving forward. Um, I like to be optimistic that things are going to get better um, yeah. as far as diversity goes um, on higher levels, as far as faculty and, and higher positions go. Yeah. Um, it's definitely something I, I think about. I'm just not like if there are any direct issues, maybe like with me being a woman, like if someone, if someone is being um, having an issue with that, I, oftentimes don't notice it in the moment it actually goes right over my head yeah which it's happened a lot and then I think back later I'm like wait I think I think there was an issue there because I'm a woman but I'm not entirely certain yeah yeah which is I mean in some ways that might be okay because you're not so hyper tuned into it that it's affecting your work or it's making you feel held back in any way but it is always interesting then to reflect and be like wait a minute you know, did they yeah. think that I wasn't capable? Were they concerned about my abilities? Is it, is it because exactly. I'm a woman? Yeah, exactly. But luckily, you know, I haven't felt that so much here at, at U of A in this department. Yeah. Um, I, I did feel that one time during my internship, yeah. but, um, but that's, that's really the extent of it. I've, I've yeah. been very, very fortunate and yeah. haven't, gone through too much that at least I've noticed. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that's the key. It's a message that I would send to any young woman who's maybe thinking about geology, geosciences is if you have any trepidation, it really is key to find a place, a department, an advisor, a mentor, a group of people that you feel comfortable with. Those are the people that you're going to be in the field with. Those are the people that you're going to make mistakes with. Right. And so yeah, if you can find a really welcoming department like we have here at U of A, um, and I experienced that as well when I was doing my master's, my advisor was extremely supportive. My fellow grad students were really supportive. It's a wonderful environment to be in, and you can actually learn a lot. And some of that fear and trepidation can actually be good because, as you say, it pushes you to do things that maybe you wouldn't have done. Exactly, exactly. My my undergraduate was really supportive of these things as well and I never felt like I had issues I I had a male on uh research advisor in my undergraduate and he was super supportive Mm -hmm. never treated me any differently than anyone so yeah yeah it really it really helps to have good mentors and allies uh in your in your court yeah really big part of it yeah but I would say Yeah. And I would, I would encourage, um, young women who have any interest, like, you know, don't let the thought of field work or being away from home for long stretches. I mean, that stuff can seem intimidating. It did to me at first. And I think that it was one of the most important things I ever did with my life was just go spend three months in a tent, you know, and live in a place I'd never been in before. It was really hard and it was really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. It's really rewarding. And you learn to forget about those things or you let go of all of those fears. Yeah. All of them. Cause you're super distracted by all the rocks. You're, you just want to geek out on all of that. And you, you totally forget that you miss home or that you're feeling vulnerable. Right. Until you, until you have to sleep that night in your tent. And you're in a bear comes by. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But also, you, for me, at least, I started to feel really powerful toward the end. Like, wow, I didn't really know if I could do this. You know, for me, it was, it was also a really extreme environment where you're going to the highest plateau on earth and you're going to live there for three months in a tent with no shower and no bathroom and no women, right? I had zero women with me. So it was a really scary thing. But by the end of it, I was like, I know what I'm capable of. Right. And so on some level, that is something too, that fieldwork gives us that maybe we didn't know before we did fieldwork. I know what I'm capable of. Yeah. You de- Yeah. You learn really fast what you're capable of. And I like to say that you'd also learn that you are really good at rising to the occasion. You're a lot better at rising to the occasion and the challenge that's in front of you than you thought you were. Yeah. And you just you keep learning what that new limit is and keep pushing it. Yeah, that's, I agree. 
that is probably one big aspect of field work that I like. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. It's fantastic. I think that uh, the work you're doing is super interesting. I love seeing someone who's so young and enthusiastic about geology coming up through the ranks because we need, we need that. We need that to both perpetuate the work being done in the field, which is really important in the field of geosciences, but also to encourage more young women to get into this field because there's so much it has to offer. And I think so much that women have to offer to the progress of geology. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're always looking for here in our local, uh, chapter of AWG, which is the Association of Women Geoscientists, we are always looking for these types of outreach events to get girls involved with science. Yeah. If any of the listeners want to partner up with us, feel free to reach out. That's right. AWG, the Association of Women Geoscientists, and it's not just for women, but it is called AWG. And we have lots of um, young women in our department who are involved in this, and it's a really great way to get involved. So we also Mm -hmm. have an undergraduate geology club. So any undergrads who are listening, you don't have to be in the geosciences department to participate in the club. So there's lots of ways for people to get to learn more about geo and and see if they're into it. Um, And I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your story with us, because I think it can be inspiring to anybody who's who's young and maybe questioning, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Come join us in the geosciences. I, I hope it has that effect. Yeah. I want to thank you for letting me come on the podcast. Absolutely. It's been great to have a student perspective, a grad student perspective. I've talked to a lot of professors and people in the working world, but this is the first time we've gotten a student perspective, which is great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here, and I look forward to when we're back in person and we can see each other in the department and bump into each other and share some stories. Me too. All right. Well, thank you again. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Bye.